we turn together in God's word today to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. We begin a new sermon series, loved ones, today in the book of Matthew, and our plan is to go through the whole book. We may take a break here and there, but we do, Lord willing, plan to go from Matthew 1 to the end in the months ahead. And we begin Matthew chapter 1 today in the first 17 verses. Hear now the word of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathon, and Mathon the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Loved ones, you'll see in your bulletin on page 3 our response to the word of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Amen. Loved ones, we're starting this series today, and it makes us ask a question. Is this just like reading through a phone book? I could tell as we were reading, some of our eyes are kind of drooping. You're wondering, are those pronounced right? I'm not sure. If you say it confidently, then it sounds like it's right, I guess. This is very hard. What do we do with this? Why is this here? 
To do that and answer that question, we need to ask even another question. You see on the front of your bulletin the name of the church. We are the name Emmaus Road Reformed Church. This might be your first week visiting. You maybe have been here since we were planted about 10 years ago. What does that name mean and why is that important and what does that have to do with Matthew? Well, church. A church is a people in a place called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Christ, the covenant assembly of God, as it is shepherded by pastors and elders and served by deacons. A church is marked by the pure preaching of the gospel, the pure administration of the sacraments. We have the Lord's Supper today the right and biblical practice of church discipline. A church is filled with the Holy Spirit of God, grounded in the gospel. We have a fellowship together in the saints, among each other as brothers and sisters. Reformed, meaning, as you look on the back of your bulletin, we confess the truths of the gospel that have been summarized for hundreds of years. We believe the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, and the Canons of Dort are faithful confessions of the faith that the church has said, this is not the Bible, but it summarizes the essential truths of Scripture. We also love the Westminster Standards here. We also confess the Apostles and Nicene Creeds, meaning we're a part of something that goes back to the ancient church, confessing the Trinity and the two natures of Christ as we have as Christians for thousands of years. Emmaus Road. We chose that name a while back because it gives us an on-ramp to the gospel. As you open up Luke 24, the end of one of the gospels, you see Jesus on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, appearing to the disciples and teaching them all the things that are about him throughout the scriptures. From the law of Moses to the Psalms to the prophets, he says it's pointing where? To me. And so when you talk to someone maybe about where you're going to church or you read about the Emmaus Road, you can be reminded of the gospel. Looking at your Savior, that's what we want to do today. That's what this genealogy does. And that's where we want this series, Lord willing, to go. Looking to Jesus for our strength, our salvation, our hope, the grace we need to love the Lord, and to love each other. Let's look at that today together. First, looking at this genealogy and why is it important. This genealogy is telling us who Jesus is. It's teaching us the incarnation. It's reminding us in these hard-to-pronounce names that we live between the time of promise and fulfillment and future fulfillment. It's telling the people who read it that the Savior has come. It's telling us that Jesus is yet to return, and it's grounding it in the Old Testament. It's reminding us that Advent is a season of new beginnings. As you read this, maybe you look back on the last 12 months and think, there's something in my life I wish I could do over. Probably all of us. Maybe the last 12 minutes. (laughs) If so, Matthew wants you to find a new beginning in Christ. A weary world can rejoice as we look at Christ in our sorrow and sin. 
as we look at snapshots of his family tree, as we are reminded that Jesus is the royal seed of Abraham and David, that Jesus fulfills the failed mission of Adam and all of Israel and all of us. A genealogy does that? Why? Well, it's a book of Genesis. That's what the word genealogy means. It reminds us that there are three distinct phases in the Old Testament. From Abraham to David, from David to the exile in Babylon, from the exile in Babylon to the coming of Christ. That means, kids, a third of Israel's history was exile. Really important to remember. The Old Testament Jews had a great interest in genealogy. Maybe you do. Maybe you love Ancestry.com. Maybe you've got all those old pictures at home of great-grandma and great-grandpa. and It's fun to look at those, isn't it, kids? To be reminded of your ancestors who came before you? Well, in Old Testament Israel, genealogy would be important for what land people got, for who would be a priest. It would be important even as they went into exile, as they kept the records of who they were and where they came from. It wasn't until 70 AD when Titus, the Roman general, mowed down Jerusalem that some of the records were lost. The Old Testament Jews had a very deep interest in genealogy. So did people who lived in the ancient world outside of Israel. Michael Kruger tells us this very important fact. The genealogies of ancient kings were selective, meaning they went through and they kind of cut out all of the dubious characters they didn't want you to know about. Cut and paste. So their genealogies were like a resume. Look at my awesomeness. I am fit to be your king. We laugh because I think deep down, you and also I know, we tend to do the same thing sometimes. Kruger says this, when you were dating your spouse and you took her home to meet your family for the first time, how many of you wondered, if she meets my family, I don't know if she's going to marry me? (laughs) This could be dangerous. I hope my dad doesn't yell at the football game on TV. Dad, please don't yell. I really hoped Uncle Joe doesn't show up. We we all tend to kind of try to look at our families in the best light possible and cut out the parts we don't like because families are complicated. At Christmas especially, family feuds can burn the most. Matthew doesn't do that. He doesn't cut out the characters of the genealogy that no one wants to talk about. Now, Matthew and Luke, their genealogies, don't include every name possible, but they cover 2,000 years of church history from the Old to the New Testament to establish Jesus' pedigree. That's what this is about. Matthew is wanting to root the history of Jesus in concrete realities of what God has done. It's a genealogy of Jesus Christ. That name Jesus was very common in the ancient world. There'd be all sorts of people with that name. It means God saves. Christ is not his last name. 
It's a title. It means Messiah, anointed one. That Jesus is the Christ, the anointed prophet, priest, and king, the promised deliverer that God has said he would send, that he comes from heaven and yet has a genealogy from earth. How can that be? The God-man. Why does Matthew start this way? Because he begins the New Testament canon the same way the Hebrew Old Testament canon ended. Michael Kruger brings this out again. Do you know the last book of the Hebrew Old Testament canon? Chronicles. Chronicles is the only other book of the Bible that begins with a genealogy. And if you've read through Chronicles, you maybe got lost because it continues with genealogies throughout. Why does that matter? Because when you read the Gospels, you're not reading a new story. You're reading the end of an old story. It was the year 2000. A Wycliffe Bible translator in New Guinea was translating the Bible into the language of the people. He started in Matthew. He didn't want to bore them with the genealogy. He skipped Matthew 1. He translated Matthew 2 to the end of the book. They struggled to know what this is all about. Many of them struggled to believe the gospel. He said, well, maybe I should go back and translate Matthew 1. He went back. He began translating it. Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, and they stopped him. They got excited. They said, do you mean to tell me these are real people? That you're not just making this up? We have records of our ancestors. We know our generations way back. And God used that by his spirit to bring them to believe in the gospel. The genealogy was crucial. We see that secondly now as we pick up in Abraham. The first period of the genealogy is from Abraham to David. The patriarchs. A period of the judges. A period when God made the promise to Abraham. I will bless you, and through you all the nations, Abraham will be blessed. Is that because of how good and righteous Abraham was, kids? No. He was a sinner saved by grace. And even after he was saved by grace, like us, he struggled with sin. He struggled with lying twice about his wife, with the fear of what people would think with trying to control things and take things into his own hands, going to Hagar rather than waiting on God's promise. But by grace, God made a covenant of grace with him. And you and I are here today because of the fulfillment of that promise. If we go back far enough, most of our ancestors worshipped pagan gods. Zeus, Thor, whomever. We were outside of the covenant. But God said, through Abraham, all the peoples will be blessed. And you, by grace, are a son and daughter of the covenant of grace by faith in Jesus who fulfilled these promises as you sit here in Minnesota today. Thousands of years after God said to Abraham, look at the stars. That's how many your descendants will be. If you are in Christ, Galatians 3, you are Abraham's what? Offspring. Heirs according to to promise. So this is not just Jesus' genealogy. 
This is yours, Christian. This is your family tree. You are one of those promised stars, those promised believers that God said he would give. That means as you sit around you here today, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ, your fathers and mothers, your sons, your daughters. A generation of spiritual children born of God through faith in Jesus. From Abraham to where? Isaac. The genealogy begins with a supernatural birth. It ends with a virgin birth. Supernatural meaning Abraham and Sarah were way past the age of childbearing. God sovereignly opened her womb. Isaac points us to Jesus. Do you remember, kids, when Abraham is taking Isaac up to offer him to God as God had said on Mount Moriah? There was a ram provided by God as a substitute. Abraham took that ram and offered it as a sacrifice. Christ is that lamb. He is the one who dies as a substitute in our place. Isaac and the gospel is there pointing us to Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus comes from the line of Jacob, a cheat, a trickster. He deceived his dad, his brother, and his father-in-law. The covenant family is a family of lying, cheating, blaming, crying sinners. One of them left the house. One of them tried to kill another. A lot of anger there. Those are the people Jesus comes to save. From Jacob to where? Verse 2. Judah. How many sons did Jacob have? Twelve. Why is Judah mentioned? Is he the oldest, kids? No. Reuben is the oldest. Does he get the most attention in Genesis? No. Joseph does. Judah chose Tamar as a wife for his son Ur. Ur is wicked. He dies. Onan steps up. He marries her. He refuses to have a child by her. He dies. Judah says, I'm going to give you my next son, but he doesn't. The Bible does not hide over the warts of Jesus' genealogy. Tamar dresses up like a prostitute, sits by the road. Judah comes along, not knowing who she is. Genesis 38, he goes into her. He finds out she's pregnant. He's furious, and he wants her burned. Then he finds out who the father is. Him. She conceives two sons, Perez and Zerah. Judah is in the line of the Messiah. Judah is a sinner saved by grace. Later in his life, remember, he agrees as a substitute to step in to help out his brother. Joseph tells the family, you've got to leave Benjamin here, and then I'll give you more grain. Judah says, no way. Our dad will be crushed. I will take Benjamin's place. Let me do that. Again, a substitute pointing forward to Christ, the substitutionary Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Genesis 49. 
Judah is told by Jacob, God says the scepter will not depart from you, Judah. This is the line of promise. From Judah through Perez, one of Tamar and Judah's sons, to Hezron and Ram. We don't know anything about these characters. The information is the same as Ruth, chapter 4. And it reminds us, to God, they're important for his plan to bring the Messiah into the world, even though to us, we don't know any details. So too in the church today, it's not about making the headlines. It's about God's grace, his persevering mercy, and faithfully faithfully serving the Lord. Verse 4, Aminadab. Who was this guy? Remember, kids? This is not just Bible trivia, but it is important to know your Old Testament. The father of the woman who married Aaron. So this is the time of the exodus from Egypt, the journey in the desert. We're at about 1500 B.C., and God is continuing to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham. Verse 5, Boaz. Now it's 800 years after Judah. He is the kinsman redeemer of Ruth, a type of Christ. Ruth finds refuge under Boaz's wings. We find refuge in Jesus. This leads us from his genealogy eventually to David. Third, the period of David to the exile. What's this genealogy about? There's two big threads. Jesus fulfills the promise to Abraham that in Abraham all the nations will be blessed, fulfilled in Christ, and now one of the sons of David will sit on David's throne forever. This is tracing now the lineage of David. Fifteen kings of the Jewish people are named from David to Jeconiah, or Jehoiachin, from David to the exile in Babylon. It reminds us that God fulfills his promises. 2 Samuel 7, David, one of your sons, will sit on your throne forever. Jesus is the heir of the Davidic throne. He is the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He is the one, Revelation 5, who has triumphed. He is the one who can open the scroll. Your Bibles are about Christ. All of these promises are looking to him. Jesus is the rightful king. He's God in the flesh. He's the heavenly king. David was a sinner like you and I. We all want to put our trust in people. The best of men and women are men and women at best. Yes, David was a man after God's own heart. But like you and I, he was a sinner. His laziness, his lust, his adultery, his murder, his lying, his covering it up. And yet, even as he covered it up, God didn't wipe it out of the genealogy. You read this and you think, what religion does this? None but Christianity. Look at verse 6. David is the father of Solomon by the what? Wife of Uriah. Why does Matthew omit the name of Bathsheba? 
as one pastor says, most likely to highlight David's sin rather than hers. That's what's going on here. There's nothing to hide. We're not covering this up. But for the grace of God, go all of us. From David to Solomon, maybe he's the promised son to sit on the throne forever, right? A rousing political success, economic prosperity, temple is built, Queen of Sheba comes, the nations are awed by his wisdom, riches, and power. And yet, Solomon was not the promised king. He takes hundreds of concubines and wives. His heart is turned away from the Lord. The kingdom is divided. Tragedy after tragedy in Kings and Chronicles and the genealogy here of darkness and sin. Yes, there's some godly kings here, like Asa or Asaph, who smashed the idols, jumping Jehoshaphat, not sure why they name him that, but it'll help you remember. Uzziah, Jotham, Hezekiah, Josiah, there are kings who believed in the promise of God. He kept a remnant, but even among those kings, Hezekiah, in his pride, says to the king of Babylon, look at what I got. Come on and look at the temple. Later on, the temple's plundered. There's a theme of pride here. Uzziah has success. He's proud. I'm not only going to be a king, I'm going to be a priest. Didn't go so well. Rehoboam. His name means freer of the people. See that verse 7? But he's the first king to oppress the people. Ahaz killed one of his own sons. Manasseh, one of the most wicked kings who ever lived, verse 10. He is in Jesus' genealogy. He engaged in witchcraft. He burned one of his sons to Molech. Decline. Apostasy. At one point, the exile happens not only to the north but the south. Assyria takes the north into exile in 722 B.C. Babylon takes the south in 586 B.C. It looks like there are no sons of David even left on the throne. Athaliah destroyed all the royal offspring, it said in 2 Kings 11. But Jehoshaphat takes baby Joash, who some of you kids learned about in Sunday school a few weeks ago, and hides him from the wicked woman who is trying to destroy the offspring, and God preserves the line of David. It says that, that she hid him for six years. It looks like things are bleak and dark, but God doesn't forget to fulfill his promises. Fourth, the exile to Christ. From Abraham to David, about 1,000 years, 2,000 to 1,000 B.C. From David to the exile, about 400 years. Now we're at about 600 B.C. From the exile to Christ, about 600 years. This is the period of captivity in Babylon. War, pagans ruling the people of Israel, complete darkness. It looks like there is absolutely no hope left. 
these people, largely, we don't even know about. There are no kings in Israel in these days. But there is a stump that has a shoot. Just like God said to Isaiah. The stump of Jesse. A shoot will come out of that stump. We see that in glimmers of pieces of God's grace here. Shealtiel, in verse 12, was the governor of Judah during the exile. Zerubbabel is his son. He leads them out of Babylon. He begins to rebuild the rubble. Zerubbabel, get it. The temple is being rebuilt. Haggai and Ezra talk about this. God says to Zerubbabel, I will fulfill my promises to you. He promises to make Zerubbabel his chosen insignia. I will do what I have promised, God says. They resettle in Judah, but they disappear from any political or cultural prominence. From Abiu to Jacob, verses 13 to 16, oblivion. Faceless, nameless, lost and forgotten names, but not forgotten by God. God preserved them in the line of the Messiah. And we come to Matthew 1, 16, and we ask the question, where is the line of David now? That's what this is about, the establishment, the rise, the fall of the Davidic line. It's about 4 or 6 B.C. Where's the line then? It's in an obscure carpenter and a woman who is about to give birth to a child that's not his. David and Mary kept their genealogical records. They were of the line of David. They're going to the house of David to be registered. That's Bethlehem. Do you notice line after line says the father of? But it comes to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the father? No, do you see that? Not the father, but the husband of Mary. Why is that? Joseph is betrothed to be married to Mary, who's pregnant with a child, but it's not his child. It's easy for us to kind of say we've heard this before. Imagine if you're hearing this, and maybe you are for the first time. Joseph is Jesus' father in the legal sense. Jesus is Mary's child lineally and by blood. Through Mary, Jesus has the blood of David. Through Joseph, he has the legal right to the throne of David. Because both Matthew and Luke's genealogies trace the line of David. Matthew to Joseph, Luke to Mary. Matthew does it through Solomon to Joseph. Luke does it through another one of David's sons, Nathan. To Mary, Luke 3, 31. Both Mary and Joseph are of the seed of David. And this matters in part because, as one pastor noted, Matthew 1, 11, Jeconiah, the son of Josiah. This man, and the names are different in some of your Bibles, in Jeremiah 22, this man was cursed. 
God said, no son of yours will sit on the throne of Israel. Jesus was not related to Jeconiah by blood. Because through Jeconiah, it goes to Joseph, not to Mary. If Jesus had been the real son of Joseph, he could not have sat on the throne of David because that would have gone against what God said in Jeremiah. So God, in his sovereign wisdom, has a plan that Jesus would be the legal heir to the throne through Joseph, but he would not be in the line of David descending through Jeconiah. God guards all the details, and how? Through the virgin birth. Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He's born without the stain of original sin. He's fully human, fully God. Truly human, truly God. The wonder of the incarnation. He has Mary's DNA. He wasn't born of an angel. The blood, the genealogy through Mary is his as a human. But God is his father, not Joseph. So he doesn't inherit a sinful nature. You ask, how is that possible? Well, it's the mystery of the incarnation that we believe in, but we don't fully comprehend. Fully God, fully man. What does that mean to you, fifth? Why does this matter today? I want to look at that through four surprising names that we may be tempted to overlook. Seemingly out of nowhere, we have four women who are mentioned. The Jews would typically not include women in their genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. Tamar, we learned about her, pretending to be a prostitute. Rahab, who was a prostitute in Jericho, From Rahab's line comes who? Boaz, who married the third woman listed, Ruth. A Moabitess, a Gentile. Where do the Moabites come from? The incestuous union of Lot and his daughters. Deuteronomy says the nation of Moab is cursed by God. And fourth, Bathsheba. Why are these women mentioned? One reason is because three of them come from beyond the borders of God's people. Three of them are Gentiles. Rahab, a Canaanite from Jericho. Ruth, a Moabite. Bathsheba marries a Hittite, Uriah, and very likely is a Hittite herself. Loved ones, Jesus has Gentiles in his family tree. Matthew includes them to prepare us for Gentiles who will trust in the Messiah. The Magi coming from the east in Matthew 2 tell us of that. Matthew 28, the gospel goes to all nations, all peoples. The gospel, loved ones, is for sinners, men and women, Jew and Gentile, all nations, all ethnicities, all skin colors, all cultures through all of time. It's for the rich, like Solomon. It's for the poor, 
like Ruth, for those who are free in their lifetime, like Asa, for those who were imprisoned, like Shealtiel, for the homeless, like Abraham, for those who were settled, like David, for all peoples. God doesn't excuse sin in any of us. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And we see repentance in the worst of sinners like who? Manasseh. That wicked king who is conquered by Babylon with a hook on his nose and shackles on his feet. And in his distress, he's humbled. He cries out to God. He's forgiven. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What is Christmas about? It's not a clean, perfect Disney story. It's Jesus coming into a fallen world to a family with sins out of love for his people. It's a divine rescue mission that Jesus was born to suffer and to die. Because one thing all of these names remind us of is that they lived and they died. They lived and they died. Is there someone who can come to deal with the problem of sin and death and Satan and the wrath of God? There is. It is Jesus Christ from the line of Abraham, the heir to the throne of David, rejected and condemned, not for his sins, but for ours. Your Savior identifies with sinners. Your Savior is rejected and takes your sin on himself. He gives you, as you trust him by faith, his righteousness. God fulfills his promises. And I want to ask you today, where are you with the Lord Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus by faith? If not, why do you postpone? If you're not a Christian, do you see what God has done to deal with our sin? God's call comes to you today. Repent and believe in Jesus and be saved. And you might think, if anyone knew what I did, I would not be accepted into that family. Maybe you've sinned worse than those on this list. But Jesus came for sinners like us, idolaters, prostitutes. God's grace is greater than your sin. Whatever shame and guilt you have in the past, whatever has happened to you, whatever memories linger, God says to sinners, put your trust in Jesus who understands who is a faithful and merciful high priest, who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. The God of the universe picked this as his family. You're not beyond the reach of God's love or grace. None of you is. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Christ. He's not slow to help you. He's not like a teenager on Monday morning who hits the alarm clock and can't get out of bed. Think of a three-year-old on Christmas morning springing up to go downstairs. Jesus is there 
hearing your prayer, to help you in your time of need. You don't have to get in line with a ticket to wait for him. He says, come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that Jesus was not ashamed to be a part of a genealogy like this. We acknowledge that we would be ashamed. We cover up. But we have no reason, Lord, to hide. We can come to the cross and find forgiveness and mercy in our time of need by faith in Christ who has made sin for us. We thank you that Jesus himself is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters and to give us eternal life. We thank you for the gospel. What a savior we have. His name is Jesus, for he saves us from our sins. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.